approach. Exodus chapter 1 in verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. And then we read as we move into Exodus chapter 2, a man of the house of Levi went and he took as a wife a daughter of Levi and she bore a son. She conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. She daubed it with asphalt and pitch. She put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, I, because I drew him out of the water. Turn to the book of Hebrews, and we just want to look at a few verses, beginning in chapter 11, verse 23. Tells the story from the New Testament perspective. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You know, life, uh, how many would agree life with children can be messy? Everybody agree with that? And uh, life with children being raised in church in an ungodly world can sometimes be a little bit messier. I want to talk about this morning um, making choices that impact generations. I'm going to begin with John Alexander's quote um, in The Other Side. He said, I suppose the worst thing we can do with our lives is actively pursue wickedness. Oppression, rape, hatred, they are hideous. But doing things that don't matter is nearly as bad. God created us as wonderful beings, capable of loving, caring, and growing. And what do we do most of the time? Nothing. We're intended to grow into the measure or the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're meant to be like trees planted by rivers of water, like redwoods. We're intended to treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. But instead, we go about our daily routines, rarely asking whether what we are doing matters. Most of the time, we're simply redwoods transplanting ourselves into the desert. Point being, we're 
doing things that don't really have eternal significance. Everyone in this room was made by God to make a difference. God has designed us to make choices in our lives that matter. Today is Mother's Day. The focus of the message, though, goes way beyond just our mothers, although we are so very thankful for them. But it speaks to all of us in this room about our choices, the choices that we make in this messy and ungodly world. But while it speaks to all of us, it does highlight a mother, one very special mother. Her name was Jochebed. And Jochebed was the mother of Moses. Her story shows up not only in the book of Exodus, but again in Hebrews 11 that I read to you just a few moments ago. Let me tell you the story of Jochebed. It's in the Bible's second book, the book of Exodus. I mean, right out of the gate, as you read through Scripture, you get to this story very early. The story actually begins in Exodus chapter 1. In the family of Jacob, which Jacob was the father of the Israelites, he was the beginnings of the nation for, of the Hebrews. They later became Israel, but his family had moved to Egypt. Because of a famine, they moved there and they just ended up staying. And they grew and they grew and they grew. And they got larger and larger. And before long, the Egyptian Pharaoh looked out and he realized that they were too strong. It wasn't going to be long, and there were going to be more Hebrews than there were Egyptians. And he feared their strength and the possibility of rebellion. So Pharaoh decided to engage in a genocide, if you will, of all of the descendants of Jacob. The Egyptian Pharaoh had heard rumors that the Jewish people believed in a Messiah that would someday come and would be a savior to them. And he was nervous about that. By this time, he had enslaved the Hebrews, and he was nervous about losing his slaves and having his kingdom overturned. And so the Pharaoh commanded the midwives that would help the Hebrew women give birth to children, he commanded them that every Hebrew male that was born was to be killed. If you know the story, you know that the Hebrew mothers, or excuse me, the midwives refused. They instead delivered the babies. They made an excuse that they couldn't help it happen too quickly, and, and they were unable to really do what they had been called on to do. And so they refused to kill the Hebrew babies that were born, and God blessed them for their courage. But their rebellion angered Pharaoh. So he stepped up his edict one level by saying, here's what we're going to do. I'm making a command throughout the nation that every Hebrew male that is to be born is to find his death by drowning in the Nile River. You can see Exodus 1 verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but let every daughter live. The Talmud, which is actually the Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, 
actually says that astrologers had told Pharaoh that the Nile would be the place where the Jewish savior could ultimately be defeated. And so he felt like if we can throw every male child from the Hebrew race into the Nile, we'll have some chance of stomping out Jacob's descendants. Jochebed was the mother of Moses. Her husband was Amram. He was from the tribe of Levi, and they had a child, and they hid him. It was a male child. They hid him for three months. Can you imagine hiding a baby for three months, not wanting the baby to cry when people walked by, being very nervous that someone would hear and possibly take your child? But at three months, the child had grown large enough that, and made enough noise that they couldn't hide him any longer. So the Bible tells us that the mother, Jochebed, made a little ark out of the bulrushes or out of the, out of the goods and the textiles. She made a little ark and she pitched it on the inside and the out. And she had Miriam, his older sister, carry the little ark with the baby inside it and place it in the Nile River, kind of hiding it among the bulrushes. And then Miriam stood off at a distance, hiding behind the bushes to see what would happen. Well, that particular day, Pharaoh's daughter came with some of her servants down to the Nile River where she was going to bathe. And she heard a little whimper coming out of the bulrushes. And she looked into that little basket, and there was this beautiful baby. The Bible says that she immediately had compassion. She fell in love with the child. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So... On cue, Miriam steps out from behind the bush and said, I see you found a baby there. Would you need someone to nurse that baby? I can find a nurse for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said, absolutely, that'd be wonderful if you have someone in mind. And she went, of course, and got her own mother, the mother of Moses. And so Jochebed was able to hold little Moses for a period of time now close to her as she fed him. And, you know, she sang the stories of Jewish history. And she told him about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And she told him about Yahweh and the faith of her God. And she instilled that truth in little Moses as long as she could hold on to him. Finally, when he was weaned from his mother, Moses went back. And he lived with Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's house. And he grew up in the Egyptian palace. He was raised there until the age of 40. When Moses was 40 years old, he knew he was a Hebrew descendant, but he had been raised in the best of homes as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he went out one day and he saw there was this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own. And he got so angry and sensed in his spirit. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says that he knew that God wanted to use him to deliver Israel. But he took out the Egyptian. He killed the Egyptian. Buried him. He looked both ways. He didn't think anybody was looking until the next day he went out and he saw two Jewish men fighting. And he just tried to separate them and say, guys, come on, get along. And one of them said, are you going to kill us? Like he killed the guy yesterday. And then he realized he had been seen. And so Moses had to flee into the wilderness for the next 40 years. And there he stayed until he was 80 years old. And there was a burning bush and God said, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to rescue my people 
from Egyptian bondage, and he became the deliverer of Israel. The writer of Hebrews sums up the faith of both Jochebed the mother and Moses the son with these words. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because he was a beautiful child and they were afraid of, they were not afraid of the king's edict. That was the faith of Jochebed. And by faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking for a reward. And so by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, but he endured as one who saw one who was invisible. The key verse is, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Look at me for just a moment. That day that Jochebed said, we're going to put Moses in this little basket and we're going to trust God with Moses. She made a choice that forever impacted generations. She was an Israelite. She gave birth to Moses while her nation was subject to Egyptian slavery. It was during a time when Campbell writes, all male babies were under the sentence of death, and yet her faith amid these distressing circumstances stands as a model for all of us. She made three important choices that are still impacting generations to this day. And I want to just lay those out for you very quickly this morning because we too have a chance to do the same thing. Number one, she made a choice to obey God rather than man. The edict of Pharaoh was for her to put her baby to death, kill that baby when it's born. But she served a God whose law was higher than the law of humanity, and so she refused. It was this God that she always sung about to Moses, that she always told stories about to Moses until possibly he was even two or three years old when finally she had to let him go. But she poured into his life and told Moses, even as an infant and a toddler, about the God that she chose to obey rather than the edict of a godless Pharaoh. Every parent today, look at me for just a moment, has the same responsibility. The context of this truth with Jochebed and Moses was the context of a culture that was steeped in animosity toward God. The Egyptians were pluralistic. They served multiple deities. They hated the, the God of Israel. And this, the whole culture was against the Jews and their faith. And yet she stood firm and said, we're going to obey God, not men. In Acts chapter 5, we go all the way to the New Testament. There are apostles like Peter and John who have been preaching the gospel. They even healed a man in Acts chapter 3 who had not walked since birth. Because of healing that man, they were thrown into prison and they testified of Jesus and they were told then that 
They could not talk about Jesus anymore. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you would tend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Parents, grandparents, we all have to make a choice. Are we going to obey God? Or are we going to obey man? In his book, What God Thinks When We Fail, Stephen Roy tells the story of a young violinist who lived in London many years ago. He was a superb musician, but he had a deathly fear of large crowds, so he avoided giving concerts. So talented, but he didn't want to be in that seat. He finally agreed to perform in the largest concert hall in London. Young violinist came onto the stage and sat alone on the stool. He put his violin under his chin and began to play for an hour and a half with no music in front of him, no orchestra behind him. There were no breaks, just an hour and a half of this incredible violin music. After 10 minutes or so, many critics put down their pads and they just listened like everybody else. Forget the review, let's just listen to this beautiful music. After the performance, the crowd rose to its feet and began applauding wildly. They wouldn't stop. They just kept applauding. But the young violinists, kind of afraid of crowds, didn't acknowledge their applause. He just peered out into the audience as if he was looking for something or someone. Finally, he found what he was looking for, and relief came over his face. And then he began to acknowledge the cheers of the crowds. And after the concert, The critics met the young violinist backstage and they said, you were wonderful, but one question, why did it take you so long to acknowledge the applause of the audience? The young violinist took a deep breath and he answered, you know, I was really afraid of playing here, but it was something I needed to do. Tonight, just before I came on the stage, I received word that my master teacher was going to be in the audience. So throughout the concert, I tried looking for him, but I never could find him, so I finished playing. And then I started to look more intently. I was so eager to find my teacher that I couldn't even hear the applause. I just had to know what he thought of my playing. That was all that mattered. Finally, I found him up in the balcony. He was standing and applauding with a big smile on his face. After seeing him, I was finally able to relax. I said to myself, if the master is pleased with what I've done, then everything else is okay. Parents, grandparents, that's where we need to be. We need to be so certain that God is pleased with us, that we're okay with that. If our kids friends, parents think we're a little odd because we don't let them do everything, 
if they think we're a little strange because church is a priority to us, if they think it's strange that we pray before we eat, so be it. If the master is pleased. Would somebody say amen if you believe that? My mom and my dad made choices for us that God would be first. They tithed. We watched them do that. I'd come down many mornings early in the morning and I would see the tithe check written out, ready to go and be, they didn't miss. They made a choice to teach their children the importance of the things of God. They served in church. My dad worked six days a week at General Motors with some of you. And then Saturday he would get home and he would study a Sunday school lesson. And for something like 40 or 50 years, he taught Sunday school back in the day that we had Sunday school. And then we had church and we all stayed the whole time and we all survived. How many remember those days? Okay, now we, we actually did. We could actually stay for more than two hours and nobody flipped out and we all did just fine. Um, my mom and dad made those kinds of choices. If I had baseball practice on Wednesday evening, that was okay. If I had a game on Wednesday evening, it was okay, but I was gonna come to church even if it was 15 minutes late, still in my uniform. Because dad was gonna instill in me that we're gonna obey God. Please say amen if you believe that. We're gonna obey God, not man. Our first priority will be the things of God. God was who they pleased first. Can I say to every parent, every grandparent, every aunt, every uncle, can I just say to everybody here, the most important choice you will ever make, especially as a parent or an adult who influences the life of a young person is to choose to obey God first and then man. If you wanna impact generations, make that choice. Number two, Jacobed, chose to embrace the values of her heritage rather than the madness of her culture. Her stance was not just one against the evil governing authority, it was against the pervading values of a godless culture. There were multiple deities that the Egyptians served, but the greatest deity they thought was the deity, the god of the Nile River. That's one of the reasons that he said all the babies were going to die in the Nile River. It also explains this verse, Exodus 7, 14 and 15. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Most scholars think that he went to the water every day because the Nile River was his God. It was the greatest deity. That was the pervading attitude of the culture. So casting babies into the Nile River was synonymous with casting them into a river of godless cultural values. But Jochebed would not give in to that cultural godlessness. She had a higher responsibility. Her decision to follow the faith of her ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it impacted her son for 40 years, for 38 years. He was in Pharaoh's house, but for a couple of years, he had been poured into by his mother. And her commitment to reject the cultural madness and serve 
The God of her fathers impacted her son who later led Israel out of Egypt. It's an example for not just mothers, but all parents, whether you're a biological parent or an adoptive parent, or those who are called to be spiritual parents, those who are discipling others in the Lord. It's an example of the impact that your quiet faithfulness can have on the lives of others. You see, Moses wasn't able to make decisions yet. When she had him, he couldn't make his own decisions, but she poured into him godly values that stood as an affront to the godlessness of her culture. I want you to listen real closely. This is as close as I'll get to meddling. It might not even be close. It might be meddling. But as adults, we owe it to our children and our grandchildren and any child that we have influence over to set the pattern for their choices. Parents who let their children, I'm not talking about 19 and 20 year olds, I'm talking about seven and eight year olds and 12 and 14 year olds. Parents who let their children decide whether or not God is gonna be important and church is going to be something they attend are making a huge mistake. Christina Hoff Summers says this, I like this quote, leaving children to discover their own values is like, a little like putting them in a chemistry lab full of volatile substances and saying, discover your own compound, kids. Kids don't know yet. You need to establish in them values and priorities. You can disagree if you want. That's simply what the word says. Train your child up in the way they should go. That's your job. And then when they're older, they'll never depart. That means they'll never get it out of their mind. It will always be there. They might choose to go away, but they'll never forget what mom and dad said. If you don't put it in there, and then they go into this culture, they're just gonna believe what the culture says. We need young people that walk into college universities and say, oh, wait a minute, I've had hammered into my mind for 18 years, completely opposite of what you're telling me, but the problem is we're sending a lot of kids who've had nothing hammered into them except Little League and sports, and they know nothing about the God of Scripture. Amen, Pastor Kevin, that's true. Sometimes you have to encourage yourself. <laughs> Aristotle said, in short, the habits, go back one screen, in short, the habits we form from childhood make no small difference, but rather they make all the difference. God put you in an authority over your children. God is sovereign over all, including the children that he has placed within your care. He placed them under your care and he's given you the commission to raise them up in the way of the Lord. Let me just give you this stat. This is Barna. Barna does great stuff. The Barna group has found that only 6%, listen to this, only 6% of adult Christians made their decision to follow God past the age of 18. Only 6%. That means 94% made decisions as children to follow Christ. That is amazing. 
It's scary. And it's encouraging. That means that there is no time like the present to be shepherding the souls of your children and your grandchildren. We need to speak truth in a godless culture. And don't shy away from truth. It's going to get ugly. I'm just going to tell you, if you stand for truth, it's going to get ugly. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Written 700 years before Jesus, here we are 2,100 years later, 2,800 years later, folks, our world has gone crazy. They call good evil. They call evil. Are you all awake and understand what I'm talking about? You've got to stand for truth. You've got to instill that in your children. This is fascinating. I'm going to read you the story. Jill Lepore told this story in The New Yorker. You all remember the uh, board game, The Game of Life. It was a hugely popular game, Milton Bradley. But it went through a lot of variations. I don't know if you know that or not. It went through a lot of variations throughout the years that reflect the changing values of our culture. In 1798, before Milton Bradley was even born, there was a board game from England that arrived in the United States and it became popular. It was called The New Game of Human Life. Acquiring virtues sped you through the game, and vices slowed you down. Parents were encouraged to play this game with their children. The game's main point was, quote, life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm. Fate is cruel, and your reward lies beyond the grave. 1860, Milton Bradley invented a simple board game based on that called the checkered game of life. The good path included honesty and bravery. The difficult path included idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led to wealth and success. Bradley described it as a, quote, highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. 1960, Milton Bradley Company released a commemorative edition called simply The Game of Life. It sold 35 million copies. In this game, you earn money, you buy furniture, you have babies. Vices and virtues are now non-existent. The winner of the game is the one who at life's day of reckoning makes the most money and retires to millionaire acres. In the 1990s, Bradley game designers tried to make the game less about money. They emphasized good deeds like saving an endangered species. Not a baby, by the way, all right, an endangered species or solving a pollution problem. However, the only reward for these good deeds is cash. You can earn as much by winning at a reality TV show. 2011 version, players can attend school, they can travel, they can start a family, or whatever they want. If they earn enough points, they can reward themselves with a sports car. There is no end or last square to the game. You can stop any time. The box says a thousand ways to win your life. You choose. Values are up for grabs. You get as many points scuba diving as you get donating a kidney. The description of the website, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. If they make a new one in 2022, I don't don't even want to see what's going to be on that board. Do you understand our values? Does anybody else get that? Our values have just flown out the window. David Wells said, what is worldliness? It is that system of values 
in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes, and makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. You all understand we live in a worldly world. How many believe that? Number three, and I'm done. So Jochebed, as I said, chose to embrace the values of her heritage rather than give in to the madness of her culture. But number three, she chose to uphold the sanctity of life rather than give in to the religion of personal convenience. Moses um, could not be given up. It would have been convenient for her much more convenient. She could have gone on and lived her life. Maybe had a girl next time. But that life was valued. I'm not even going to talk about that. I don't need to tell you the implications of that. Moses could not be given up for her personal convenience. His life mattered, and she instilled in him the values of the kingdom. Hear it one more time. Listen to these words. By faith, when he was born, he was hidden for three months because they saw he was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Her choice, look at me, her choice spared his life. And do you realize if his life had been taken, who would have delivered the thousands upon thousands of Israelites that were held captive in Egypt? You see, her choice spared his life and the lives of thousands of Hebrews that Moses would one day deliver. I want you to stand with me if you would. And I just want to tell you one last story, and then I'm going to close but I'd like for you to stay put if you can, please. It's still very early. Mark Batterson is an incredible author, great pastor, great preacher. Wrote a book called Chase the Lion. And he tells um, about an article written in 1983 by Lorne Whitehead. It's just an interesting little story about domino chain reaction. Those of you who are engineers or scientists will like this. You can picture it in your mind. You knock over a domino and it sets off a chain reaction that can knock down hundreds of dominoes in a matter of seconds. But the unique significance of Whitehead's research was discovering that a domino is capable of knocking over a domino that is one and a half times its size. So a two-inch domino can topple a three-inch domino. Three-inch domino can topple a four-inch, four-and-a-half-inch domino. And a four-and-a-half-inch domino can topple, you get the point. So by the time you get to the 18th domino, listen to this, you can knock over the leaning tower of Pisa. Of course, it's leaning, so that's not really fair, but you could still topple it over. The 23rd domino could knock over the Eiffel Tower. 
And by the time you get to the 29th domino, you could take down the Empire State Building. So in the realm of mathematics, there are two types of progression, linear and geometric. Linear progression is two plus two equals four. Geometric progression is compound doubling. Two times two equals four. So if you take 30 linear steps, you're 90 feet from where you started. But if you take 30 geometric steps, you've circled the earth 26 times. Faith isn't linear. That's what I want you to hear. It's geometric. Every decision you make, every step of faith you make has a chain reaction. Don't don't sit there and think it doesn't matter the choice you make for your six-year-old or your nine-year-old. It matters. It has a chain reaction. Those chain reactions set off thousands of others, thousands of other chain reactions that we aren't even aware of. And some of them will not even be revealed until we get to the other side of the time continuum. And then we realize that one little choice we made led to another choice that they made, led to another choice that they made. Jochebed said it would be easier not to have this child. But I have to obey God rather than man. I have to resist this crazy godless culture and do the right thing according to truth. And so she shaped the basket, she put him in there, and she laid him in the river and said, God, I'm trusting you making the right choice. Sometimes you just got to do the right thing. Put your baby, your child, your four-year-old, your nine-year-old, your 16-year-old, get them in the right direction, put them in the basket, lead them the way they need to be led, pray over them and say, God, now I've done all that I can do, but I've done what you've called me to do, and I'm going to trust you now. We have the opportunity to impart our faith to others. And ultimately, potentially, it could impact generations. Life is messy, messier with children. But you can make a huge difference if you take seriously the call and charge that God has placed on your life. Can I read you this last quote? You'll all appreciate this. It's by Billy Graham. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation. We can't bear full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Don't ever neglect the most sacred of responsibilities. That's to invest in the lives of your children, your grandchildren. Bow your heads with me if you would. Father, I thank you for your word today. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to make godly choices that will impact others for the sake of eternity. Help us to make choices that will impact generations, I pray. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. If you are a parent, you're an expecting parent, if you are a grandparent raising your children, if you're fostering, you 
you've adopted. I want you just to come and stand as close to the front as you can. Would you do that? Everybody just step out right now. All of our parents, any, anybody that's raising a child today, would you just come to the front? I'm not one of those super mystical pastors. I don't do this a lot, but I do it occasionally. I do believe that there is some power in blessing. The word blessing is the Greek word eulogos. It's where we get eulogy. It means to speak well of, to speak over. And I just want to speak this blessing. I wrote this for our parents today. Just bow your heads and just receive these words. May you be blessed with revelation and understanding to know the great importance of your life and your example to your children. May you be emboldened like Jochebed to make choices no matter how hard they are that will guard and protect the innocence of your children's hearts and spiritual well-being. May you never become enamored with the spirit of this world or the deceptive offerings of fame, success, or prominence. But instead, may you be rooted in an undying commitment to be the godly parent God called you to be. May you have courage to speak truth without blushing and call out sinful foolishness without compromise or anxiety. May you protect more tenaciously the spiritual appetites of your children and the innocence of their hearts than you do their athletic skill and their temporary pleasure. May you never become blinded by the world's temptation to make Jesus and his bride optional while pursuing priorities that are fleeting, unhealthy, and lacking spiritual value. May you be granted wisdom to see the enemy's ploys and a desire to have your children for his own and the spiritual power to engage your enemy and defeat his efforts in the spiritual realm of prayer. May your life model humility and grace and developing faith and may you have a heart of integrity that is willing to say you're sorry that you've made a mistake or you've missed the mark when you do fail may you accept the responsibility to guide the choices of your children and ensure that they are to pursue jesus and if not be willing to correct discipline and lead them to godliness may you be blessed with wisdom from above strength that is supernatural and a hope that is enduring May God give you children and grandchildren that will arise and bless you, that will honor you and serve God with a passion for his kingdom and desire to know Jesus more intimately. And may you not become discouraged or overwhelmed, but instead know always that what God has called you to do, he will equip you to accomplish. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. I bless you in Jesus' name. We sing this chorus together. Just worship.